Well, I am excited to be here again this morning, and I'm just so thankful to the worship team, the music team leading us in praise through song to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning, and to hear all of you singing together. I was talking to Sam before the session started, and we were talking about how this makes us long for heaven, and it's true, isn't it? I started yesterday with an illustration from church history, and I'm going to do the same this morning. The year was 1860. It was the first year that the Pony Express sent riders from Missouri to California. It was also that year that Abraham Lincoln became the 16th president of the United States. And it was in that same year, on December 2nd, 1860, that Charles Thomas Studd was born into a wealthy family in England. 16 years later, through the influence of D.L. Moody, Charles would give his life to Jesus Christ. He would go on to Cambridge, where he would become one of the most well-known cricket players of his day, famous not only throughout Britain, but throughout the entire world. But when his time at Cambridge ended, Charles realized that he did not want to pursue a career in athletics. As he said it, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it is worthwhile to live for the world to come. How could I spend the best years of my life living for the honors of this world when thousands of souls are perishing every day? Armed with an eternal perspective and motivated by a desire to serve Christ no matter the cost, Charles Thomas Studd, known by his initials CT, left England to serve as a missionary in China under the direction of Hudson Taylor. C.T. Studd spent a decade in China, most of that time working in a rehabilitation center for opium addicts, bringing them the good news of forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ. And while in China, he married his wife Priscilla, and they had four daughters. After spending a few years back in England, the family moved to India where Charles pastored a local church for seven years, and though he struggled with severe asthma, struggling often at night even to breathe, he faithfully preached the gospel, and as a result, many souls in southern India came to a saving knowledge of Christ. Shortly thereafter, he became convinced that God wanted him to take the gospel to the innermost jungles of Africa, He eventually reached the Belgian Congo in 1913, though it was not easy. At one point, he contracted a severe case of malaria. On another occasion, he woke up in the morning to realize a poisonous snake had been sleeping by his side all night long. But along with his fellow missionaries, Studd established a number of mission stations in the heart of Africa, bringing the gospel to tribal groups that had never before heard the name of Jesus Christ. He wrote over 200 hymns. He helped translate the New Testament into the native language. 
And he died in Africa at the age of 70, having spent almost his entire adult life as a missionary, 10 years in China, seven years in India, and nearly 20 years in Africa. And through his unwavering commitment as a good and faithful servant of Jesus Christ, many souls heard the gospel through C.T. Studd. As one might imagine, that kind of pioneering missionary work was very taxing. But his response was simple and sincere. Studd said, if Jesus Christ is God, and if he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That undying commitment to serve Christ no matter the cost is perhaps best captured in the words of a poem that he wrote. You've probably heard part of this poem before. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind they would not depart. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon its fleeting hours are done. And then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. The testimony of a man like C.T. Studd raises an important question that I believe we all must ask ourselves. And I think it is especially important for you as college students at the crossroads of your life to ask yourselves this question. What does it mean to be successful As you think about your life, your career, your calling, your future, in the quietness of your own heart, how do you define success? Whether you're a Bible major or a business major, an athlete or a musician, a graduating senior or a second semester freshman, What is your measure of success? Because you see, how you answer that question will set the tone, the direction, the trajectory for the rest of your life. And as you continue to contemplate that question, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles by way of introduction to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, this chapter is a familiar one often referred to as the Hall of Faith. Those listed here include Abel, Enoch, Noah, the patriarchs, Moses, and others. And the author of Hebrews recounts their stories of faith and faithfulness. Look with me there in Hebrews 11 at the middle of verse 35. There, the author of Hebrews, as he addresses the prophets and these heroes of the faith, 
middle of verse 35, he says, others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, but they were wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. This chapter lists some of the most well-known Old Testament saints who, because they walked by faith and not by sight, provide an example of faithfulness that Christians are to follow. They are the, the great cloud of witnesses that is talked about in chapter 12, verse 1, who have gone before us and who, by their collective witness, motivate us to run the race with endurance as we keep our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of the faith. But I, I want you to consider the description of these individuals in Hebrews 11 from the verses we just read. Because you see, from the world's perspective, they can hardly be considered successful in any measurable sense. Successful people aren't mocked and scourged. Successful people don't get arrested and thrown in prison. They aren't stoned to death, sawn in two, or beheaded. They don't walk around in goatskins. They're not destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. They don't wander in the desert or live in a hole in the ground. Or do they? Well, that all depends on how you define success. If success is defined in terms of the here and now, in terms of popularity, power, wealth, comfort, accolades, and the passing pleasures of sin, then admittedly, the people listed in Hebrews 11 failed to find success. But if success is defined from God's perspective, from an eternal vantage point, where faith in Christ and faithfulness to Christ is what matters because he is the standard of success, that the men and women of Hebrews chapter 11 not only understood what true success is, they applied that understanding to everything they did. Consequently, they chose to follow the Lord, obey his word, and trust in his promises no matter the cost. They had an eternal perspective that looked forward to heaven a little earlier in the chapter, the author of Hebrews says, and God is not ashamed to be their God. He has prepared a city for them. For them, success was measured in terms of eternity, and that is how we ought to measure success as well. Now this year, 2016, I'm coming up to my 20th high school reunion makes me feel old. And uh, if you guys went to a high school like mine, I actually grew up here in Santa Clarita, I went to Saugus High School. You had a yearbook. And perhaps in your yearbook, 
There was a section where the seniors either gave a little testimony or were able to answer some question. And uh, one of the questions that seems to be popular in yearbooks is, what do you see yourself doing in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years? And I think the whole thing is sort of a joke so that when we go back for our reunions, we can see how far off we were from what we thought we were going to be doing. But I want to extend that illustration here to make a point. What will you be doing in a hundred years? What will you be doing in a thousand years? 10,000 years? A million years from this moment, what will you be doing? You say, well, I'll be dead. You will have experienced death, but you will not have ceased to exist. You will be very much alive. And if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you will be in his presence, surrounded by the redeemed and the angels in glory, and you will be worshiping and praising and serving him for all of eternity. And you see, when we allow that perspective to affect the decisions that we make for the 70 or 80 small years that we have in this life, that's an eternal perspective. To lay up treasure, not in this world, but in the world to come. Now, some of you may be wondering at this point, what does this have to do with goodness and faithfulness, which is our theme for this session? To answer that question, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Because it is there in Matthew 25 that we are given the very definition of success from the lips of Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is telling his disciples a parable. It's a familiar story about a master and his slaves. And in the story, the master represents the Lord Jesus Christ, and the slaves represent professing believers. But it is in the midst of this parable that Jesus articulates the most wonderful words that any believer could ever hear. Look at verse 21, Matthew 25. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. He repeats that same thing in verse 23. Well done, good and faithful slave. Aren't those the words that every believer longs to hear? Those are the words that I long to hear. And isn't that then the, the ultimate measure of success? To be pleasing to Christ, our master, 
Because, as we've already said, he is the standard of success. And did you notice the two adjectives that Jesus used to describe these servants whom he commended? They were good and faithful. Those are the same Greek words, although in adjective form here, that are found in Galatians 5.22, where we find the nouns goodness and faithfulness. And so if the supreme measure of success is to hear our Lord say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a little. I will put you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What does that mean then for our pursuits and our passions and our priorities for our understanding of success? Now let's talk for a moment about goodness and faithfulness. Goodness might be broadly defined as an inner quality of moral excellence that manifests itself in good works of obedience to God and good works of kindness and love to other people. Now, to be clear, true goodness is not some sort of self-righteous legalism or external moralism. The Bible repeatedly states that entry into heaven cannot be earned on the basis of good works. According to Isaiah 64, 6, the good works that an unbeliever performs are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Paul said of his pre-conversion religious works, Philippians 3, that they are like a pile of dung. In Romans 3, 12, he explained that there is none who does good, not even one. So if if sinners are to be forgiven and declared righteous, they must be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, based on the finished work of Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 could not be more clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our good works then play no part in our justification. But that doesn't mean that there is no place for them in the Christian life. Good works do not contribute to salvation, but they do flow from the hearts of those who are saved. As has been famously said, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Good works, then, are the fruit of a transformed life. They are the evidence of a heart that has been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Paul goes on to say in the next verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So when we speak about good works in the Christian life, we, we are talking about the sincere obedience that flows from a heart that has been transformed by love for Christ and empowered and sanctified, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Our goodness in the eyes of God is only possible because we have been clothed in the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ 
our Savior who accomplished everything necessary for us at the cross. We've been united to him and we've been transformed by his spirit so that we have become new creatures in Christ. And as we walk in him through the power of the spirit, the fruit of our life abounds in good works. I like what R.C. Sproul said about Galatians 5.22. He said, the ultimate standard of goodness is the character of God himself. This is why Jesus said to the rich young ruler, no one is good but God. Yet the quality of goodness is planted in the lives wherein the Holy Spirit works. He works goodness within us. Though our best works remain tainted by sin, nevertheless, a real change is wrought within us. Sproul continues, not only does God declare us just by imputation of Christ's righteousness, he indwells us to make us what he declares us to be. Sanctification follows justification, and that sanctification is as real as our justification. The fruit is goodness. You see, that's why only a true believer can exhibit the fruit of goodness. Because only believers have been justified and regenerated and only believers have been sanctified and are being sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now on the horizontal level, that goodness extends to others as we emulate the goodness and the kindness of our Lord and we manifest that in our relationships with other people. It was because of God's goodness that we are saved And we reflect that goodness when we respond to one another in ways that are righteous and loving. That brings us then to our second term, faithfulness, goodness and faithfulness. Let me give you a really simple definition. If faith can be defined as trust, then faithfulness can be defined as trustworthiness. God himself is characterized by perfect faithfulness such that when we hope in him, we know that his word will never fail because he is perfectly trustworthy. As Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, is he not our perfect example of faithfulness? The one who humbled himself and became obedient in perfect submission to his father's will, even to the point of death, and even a death as shameful as being crucified on a cross. And as we walk in faith and obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit, we exhibit the spiritual fruit of faithfulness to the Lord And we are called to be faithful, faithful to Christ, faithful to his word, faithful to the responsibilities with which he has entrusted us. And again, on that horizontal level, this faithfulness extends to others as we demonstrate loyalty and trustworthiness in our relationships with them. So we have these two qualities, goodness and faithfulness, both of which are manifestations of genuine saving faith and the true work of the Spirit, and they will therefore be evident in the life of every believer. 
And this is the part that I think is so amazing to consider is that the Lord gives believers the grace and the power through the Holy Spirit that they need to be the good and faithful servants that he calls us to be. This morning then I want to explore a little bit more this theme of the good and faithful servant. In fact, when I was given this topic, goodness and faithfulness, I couldn't help but see a connection with what Christ said in that parable in Matthew chapter 25. Now, as we've already noted, there is undoubtedly a horizontal component to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Believers exhibit goodness and faithfulness as they seek to do good for others and as they demonstrate themselves to be loyal and trustworthy in their relationships with one another. But there is also a vertical aspect to the fruit of the Spirit I don't think that can be ignored in terms of the believer's walk with Christ. The Spirit empowers believers to grow in the grace of sanctification, the fruit of which is obedience, and the Spirit empowers them to walk in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Positionally, those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ have been forgiven, declared righteous, and given the unalterable promise of heaven. But practically, we need to be reminded of the standard of faithfulness to which our master calls us. That brings us back to Jesus' words in Matthew 25, 21, and 23. Is it not our greatest desire to hear him say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant? Is that not our measure of success? And if it is, how does it affect our priorities, our passions, our pursuits, our perspective? Now, in answering that question, I would like to consider the example of the Apostle Paul, the very one who through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned Galatians 5.22, because he was a man who understood that true success is measured in terms of faithfulness to Christ. Many places in Paul's writings that we could go to see this demonstrated, but I want us to look at the very last chapter that Paul ever wrote. In that sense, these are almost like Paul's famous last words. And I want us to hear from him his perspective as he reflects on his life of faithfulness to Christ. So if you would, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This will be the last time I have you turn. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's second letter to Timothy was written during his second imprisonment in Rome, just a few months before he was executed by Nero. Would have been around the year AD 66 or 67, over 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, more than 30 years after Paul had been dramatically converted on the road to Damascus. 
It was written from a lonely dungeon, and it was written to exhort Timothy to stand firm in the truth, to faithfully serve as a minister of the gospel. Timothy himself was pastoring the church in Ephesus at the time, and according to church tradition, he would remain the pastor there for the better part of three decades. So Paul, knowing that his time was short, sought to pass the baton of faithfulness on to Timothy, and it is in then the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, the last chapter Paul was ever to write, that we are given a glimpse of his understanding of what it means to be a good and faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So we look at this passage together, 2 Timothy 4, I would like to draw out from the passage three contrasts that underscore the difference between the world's temporal understanding of success and a heavenly, eternal understanding of success. Three contrasts. Now, I don't intend to do a full exposition of this entire chapter. I do want to be sensitive to my brother Chris coming up after me. But I do want to highlight three principles that I think we can draw from this text, and they're illustrated in the life of the Apostle Paul as he reflects on his own Christian walk. And as we look at how he finished well, it causes us to consider how we think about success. When you come to the end of your life, what do you want, what do you want to look back on and say, this was what my life was all about? Again, how you answer that question has so much to do with the direction, trajectory, choices that you make now. So here's Paul. And the first contrast is found in verses one to five, and we might call it a contrast in motivation. A contrast in motivation. Whereas this world prioritizes temporal pleasures and the self-centered pursuit of happiness, the good and faithful servant is motivated by a desire to be pleasing to Christ no matter what. A different motivation. Look with me at the opening words there of 2 Timothy chapter four. I solemnly charge you, Paul writes to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. It's obvious in these verses a clear contrast between the self-serving ministries of the false teachers and the God-exalting ministry of the faithful servant of Christ. 
Notice the difference in motivation that Paul articulates. Timothy was to be motivated by a desire to please his master, the king, the all-knowing judge of all people, the Lord of the universe, the one to whom he would one day stand before and give an account. There could be no greater motivation than that. It's what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. By contrast, the false teachers were motivated by vanity and pride, gaining favor with people by telling them only what they wanted to hear. Back in chapter three, we learn that these false teachers were lovers of self and lovers of money, and we see that also in places like 1 Timothy 6 and the book of Jude and 2 Peter 2. They measured success in terms of fame, momentary fun, and the fortune that they could gain through their dishonest efforts. These false teachers interpreted success much like our world does, right? What does it mean to be successful? Well, it means to be famous. It means to be rich. It means to be politically powerful in some way. It means to have a fulfilling career. Is that success? Paul tells Timothy that these false teachers were fools in chapter 3, verse 9. Their example is reminiscent of the rich man whom Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. You know the story, the guy who had so much stuff that his garage wasn't big enough, so he had to build a bigger garage, barns. God said to him, you fool, This very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. First Timothy 6, after talking about the dangers of loving money, Paul warned Timothy to flee from those things to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, and to fight the good fight of faith, to be good and faithful. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second, isn't this chapter only for pastors? Well, it's true that in the context, Paul is referring specifically to pastoral ministry. But I'm not just talking to the Bible majors this morning. No, the broader principle holds true for every believer because the New Testament teaches that every one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Paul says that in Romans 14, verses 10 to 12. He says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. As surely as I am standing here before you this morning, you will one day stand before Christ. And in that moment, the true meaning of this life will become very, very clear. And if you don't understand that now, 
you are setting yourself up for failure. Catastrophic failure. When we meditate on that reality, it motivates our faithfulness to Christ, does it not? This was the kind of perspective that Timothy needed if he was going to fulfill his calling as a good and faithful slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the difference between a temporal and an eternal perspective. One of my favorite missionary stories, in addition to the one I told earlier about C.T. Studd, is the story of Adoniram Judson. And if you ever have an opportunity at some point later in life when you don't have books that you have to read, but you have books that you get to read, I would encourage you to put the biography of Adoniram Judson on that list. Judson got married to his wife, Anne, just two weeks before they left America to go first to India and then to Burma. This is in the early 1800s to take the gospel to an unreached people group. Before they got engaged, Judson sent a moving letter to his future father-in-law asking for permission to marry this man's daughter. And in that letter, Judson spelled out the dangers that he knew they would face once they got to the field. This is what Adoniram Judson wrote. Remember, he's asking this man for permission to marry his daughter. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring and to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, and to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a Violent death. I'm thinking, Adoniram, give yourself a chance here. <laughs> you say, why would he say that? Well, he goes on to explain his perspective. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her savior from the heathens who were saved through her influence from eternal woe and despair? I'm like, okay, as a dad now, you can marry my daughter. That's a powerful letter, isn't it? Here's a man motivated by a desire to glorify and honor Christ and to see his gospel proclaimed and it doesn't matter what the cost because he has a clear understanding of what motivates an eternal perspective, one that in God's eyes is true success. Timothy needed to be reminded that true success starts with the right motivation to have as our ambition in all things to be pleasing before the one before whom we will all one day give an account. 
So the first contrast is a contrast in motivation. That brings us to a second contrast here. A second contrast that's illustrated in verses six, seven, and eight, and we might call this a contrast in measure. A contrast in measure, or a contrast in measurement, if you prefer. Whereas this world measures success in terms of temporal gains and passing pleasures, the good and faithful servant assesses his or her success in terms of heaven's approval. It's a different measure of success. Look at verses six, seven, and eight. Paul writes, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing Now, we've already talked about it this morning, but from those verses, how did Paul measure success? Well, in verse six, he's talking about the end of his life, which he pictures as a sacrifice to God, a drink offering to God. So he is both looking back on his Christian walk and he is looking forward to the reward that is awaiting him. And in verse seven, he uses three phrases to describe the fact that he has been faithful in this life to the stewardship he received from God. He has fought the good fight, contending earnestly for the faith. He has finished the course. He did not deviate from the path or disqualify himself in the race. He endured to the end, never losing sight of the prize for the upward call in Christ Jesus. He's kept the faith in a day when so many were abandoning it because of the persecution under Nero or those who were abusing it and distorting it for the sake of dishonest gain. Paul guarded the purity of the gospel and never wavered in his faithfulness to it. And so in verse eight, he rests in the knowledge that he will be rewarded for his faithfulness And as he looks forward to heaven, just months before his death, he essentially says, I know this life will soon be over, but I also know that by his grace, I have been faithful. And so I look forward to receiving his approval because his smile on my life is the most important thing to me. We've already seen the false teachers measured success in riches, accolades, popularity, power, the passing pleasures of this world. But for Paul, the measure of success, the standard of success was something, or more rightly, someone entirely different. And so I ask you this morning, is Jesus Christ your standard of success such that his view of your life is your measure of success? Several years ago, my wife and I came across a black and white television show. It was a game show from the 1940s that was being rebroadcast. It was called, What's My Line? In fact, they enunciated it like that. What's My Line? It was great. And it was a show in which four panelists would ask yes or no questions to different people to try and guess their occupations, their line of work. 
My wife and I would watch the show occasionally, in part because the whole thing just had this classic charm of nostalgia associated with it, and it was just a lot of fun. But it, it struck me one evening as we're watching this show, and I don't mean to sound morbid, but I actually had this thought. Everyone on the screen is dead. Here their, their likenesses are preserved on the television screen, but they themselves have all died. I'm watching them laughing, telling jokes, having a fun time together, and yet at the same time I'm realizing they're not here anymore. It's kind of eerie. It was also really helpful. The moderator of the show was the lead news broadcaster for ABC. One of the panelists was the head of Random House Publishers. They often had well-known personalities on the show. In fact, we watched one where Walt Disney was a guest. Yet the truth is that all of those individuals, no matter how much they accomplished in this life, no matter how successful we might say that they were, they are all now in eternity. And I don't know the conditions of their hearts before the Lord, but it was sobering to consider this. No matter how successful they were in this life, if they died apart from a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, their life ultimately was a failure. And the same is true for you. For believers, the definition of success is far different than it is for the world. We've noted that true success is fueled by a completely different motivation. Our motivation is Christ. And we've seen that true success is evaluated by a completely different measure. Our measure is Christ. Well, there's a third contrast that's illustrated, I think, in the life of Paul here at the end of his earthly sojourn, verses 9 to 18. And we might express it this way, a contrast in mindset a contrast in mindset. Whereas this world's perspective on success is entirely temporal, the good and faithful servant is characterized by a heavenly mindset. Given his circumstances, Paul's heart attitude is not at all what the world would expect. I want you to notice the setting in which Paul found himself as he wrote this letter at the end of his life. Look at verses 9 to 16. Make every effort, Paul writes, to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Consider Paul's circumstances here. The great apostle Paul, he is in prison about to die. 
He has been betrayed by Demas, a former friend and ministry colleague. His other associates have also left for various reasons. Only Luke is with him. He does not have his books. He does not have his coat. His enemies seek to harm him and actively oppose everything he stands for. He has been abandoned and falsely accused. No one even stood with him at his trial. After more than two decades of sacrificial ministry with trials and difficulties too many to count and with churches planted across the Roman Empire, the great apostle Paul lies destitute in a Roman dungeon. He's physically impoverished, betrayed by a close associate, abandoned by his friends, persecuted by his enemies, falsely accused, unjustly condemned, unpopular, unappreciated, and undignified. That is not how the world defines success. And I look at Paul's circumstances at the end of his life and I ask myself, if my life were to end like that, in isolation and hardship and false imprisonment and impending execution, would I consider it to be a success? Would you? Well, the answer to that question depends on our mindset, doesn't it? Are we measuring success from man's perspective or from God's? Because even if from man's perspective, Paul's circumstances don't seem very successful, from God's perspective, the apostle Paul was indeed a success. And even in this dark hour, Paul did not lose heart. As he had already mentioned in verses seven and eight, he had been faithful and he knew his reward was waiting for him in heaven. And so then he says in verses 17 and 18, in spite of these difficulties, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Now, I just have to stop there for a second because... I wanna make a connection with what I was talking about yesterday when I talked about joy and peace. You remember Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The word for strengthen here, very same word. Paul's still applying that joy and that peace in the midst of these circumstances. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished so that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. It doesn't matter what happens to me here, Paul says. I know where I'm going, and I know, I know I'm gonna see my Savior when I get there. And as I read Paul's response and I consider his circumstances, I find myself asking, is that my mindset? Because this is the mindset of a good and faithful slave of Jesus Christ. That it doesn't matter what happens to us as long as we are faithful to him because he is our reason to live and he is the standard for how we live. And knowing that we will one day be with him changes everything about how we view this earth and this life. 
Paul elsewhere said, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The false teachers, like so many people in our world, had such a temporal, earthbound mindset. They defined success in terms of what they could amass themselves in this life, amass for themselves in this life. They're like that rich fool. But Paul, as a good and faithful servant, saw success through the lens of a heavenly perspective. What is momentary light affliction in light of the eternal weight of glory that awaits. And so by God's grace, through the power of his Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul illustrates for us what it is to be a good and faithful servant. Paul's motivation was to be pleasing to Christ in everything. And knowing that the master was pleased was his measure of success. And as a result, then, his mindset was characterized by a perspective that rejoiced in the reality that to live is Christ and to die is gain because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Not long after Paul penned these words, he was taken from that Roman dungeon and he was led to a place of execution. And according to church tradition, because he was a Roman citizen, he was not crucified like Peter had been, but he was beheaded with a sword. And in that moment, as his life ended with the flash of a blade, Paul was ushered immediately into the presence of his Savior, where he was certainly greeted with a smile of approving affirmation. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. How do you define success? And how has that definition shaped your life? as one who longs to be a good and faithful slave of Jesus Christ. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word and seeing some of these principles that we drew out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we see Paul at the end of his life, from the world's standpoint, it almost seems like everything has fallen apart, and yet from a heavenly perspective, from your vantage point, the one that only matters, Paul was a good and faithful servant. Father, we know that we can only pursue sanctification and faithfulness by your grace through the power of your Holy Spirit. And yet we ask that by your grace and mercy, as we walk in faith, 
we might bring honor and glory to the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. He is our heavenly master, and we look forward to seeing him one day. We pray these things in his name, amen.